This is Let Your Voice Be Heard, right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. I love this song. King Kunta. And we yeah. are Shanta. back on really Let Your Voice Be Heard on 90.3 FM, WHCR, the voice of Harlem. And if you are just tuning in, this is Stanley Fritz, Alyssa Fuchs, and Selena Hill. We were talking about homegrown terrorism during the first half of our show, had a nice, interesting debate about the Patriot Act and what helps to cause terrorism during the news roundup. Also mentioned the Boko Haram girls who were kidnapped and how a lot of them came back pregnant, unfortunately. And I mentioned my bike tour. Now... After talking about all those depressing things, we are here to talk about more, more depressing, depressing things. things. Oh, God, Knock shoot me. It's Mother's Day, really, Stanley? Well, if you were, you know, go outside, you might get shot by a cop. I don't know. Stop. We've got to stop. We're sorry for depressing you. Jokes. No, guys, we are not as depressing. It's not that we're depressing them, it's that the world is depressing them. You know, and when that girl Layla committed suicide, yes. she said, fix society, please. And she was talking about trans, the way trans people are treated, but mm-hmm. her statement is bigger than that. Like, fix society, please. That's why we're always talking about depressing things. Well, I will say, um, later on the show, we're going to end it on a high note. We have a dreamer and doer coming in studio here. His name is Dante Barry, and he's doing phenomenal things in the Black Lives Matter movement. Yes, so that's we'll right. That. That's right. So, guys, and for this segment on this conversation on the show, we are talking about the 1994 crime bill. So, in case you guys don't know, Bill Clinton had an interview on CNN a couple of days ago in which he expressed some regret over legislation that he had passed. One of the biggest pieces of legislation that he had passed that he felt regret over was his 1994 crime bill. So, in case you guys don't know what was going on when that bill was passed, that's when we had just seen like a huge upflow in gang crime in places like California. We had had that huge riot. Um, um, I forgot the name of the riot, the, the Rodney King riots. We had a lot of gang activity, a lot of gun violence, an uptick of gun violence. I think there were uh, there were 103 recorded like shootings, like mass shootings, in like low income communities. And Democrats are trying to show that they were tough on crime because that used to be a stigma against Democrats. So what did they do? They passed the crime bill. So to give you guys some background on that, it is still. The largest crime bill in the history of the United States, consisting of 356 pages, providing for 100,000 new police officers, $9.7 billion in fundraising, in, pardon me, in funding for prisons, and $6.1 billion in funding for prevention programs, which were designed with significant input, input from experienced police officers. It was sponsored by, guess who, Joe Biden and U.S. Representative Jack Brooks, who has since then come out and said he regrets the bill, as has Joe Biden. And why are we talking about this? Because we're being reflective in regards to what has been going on over the last couple of years. I think Chris Rock said it best when he said that that shootings of the killings of people of color has not increased. There's, there's not more of them happening. It's that we have it on camera. And because we have it on camera and we're seeing this happen, people are starting to ask the question, well, why have the policemen reacting this way? against communities of color. And then we did that re- that study on Ferguson, and we saw how they were policing to get money, and they were not actually doing community policing, and we started to wonder if this was happening in other places. Baltimore has shown us that it has. We've also seen a huge form of militarization in these police forces. Perfect example, shooting tear gas from a tank at regular protesters in Ferguson, or police officers coming at, student- coming at young teenagers with high-powered rifles and machine, not machines, but high-powered rifles and rubber bullets when they were throwing rocks. And if you would ask someone, if you had played this from another country, someone would have thought you were looking at Palestine mm. or the Middle East yep. because it was just so ridiculous. And we, well, we've seen this huge pushback from these police forces, but the question always begins with where did this come from? So I'm going to give a short story. I promise I won't make this too long-winded, but we're going to start off with Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon became president right after LBJ had been president. Um, and we know LBJ had pushed for the Great Society, the War on Poverty. 
after there had been so much argument and debate about this war on poverty and how people felt they were, you know, they were pretty much paying money to let lazy people, quote, quote unquote, lazy people um, get freeloads. Nixon came in and he said, we have to go back to what's normal. We have to go back to order. We have to go back to law enforcement. And he started to slowly push legislation that would help to, you know, to put more people in prison and, quote unquote, hold more people accountable. Ronald Reagan came into office in the 80s and he ramped that up by 10 by ten thousands, so Richard Nixon keyed this term "war on war on drugs" and "war on crime," and Ronald Reagan was really the person that that really like pushed that forward. And how did he do that? He poured funding into police forces and to federal agencies that could arrest people. He helped to increase the amount of time that you can get put in jail for certain crimes. And in 1986, they signed he signed a bill into law that will put mandatory li- mandatory minimums on certain crimes, in particular drug crimes, which happen to happen in a lot of low-income communities because obviously low-income communities have to find a way to make money. So a lot of people turn to drug dealing, unfortunately, because that, so unfortunately at times, that is their only other option. That was all culminated in 1994 when Bill Clinton coming into office as a Democrat, trying to show that he can be a Democrat, but also play to the right and be tough, passed this war on crimes bill. And it did many things. So, like I said before in the beginning today, we're going to take a compare and contrast and see how it has affected things before. So, I know Alyssa had her hand up, so I have to give my little soliloquy. I want to give her a chance to jump no, in. No, I just wanted to actually add something to something that you mentioned in your history lesson that I think felt was <laughs> Professor Stanley on yeah, the mic. No, your, your history lesson was really good. It just left out one key point that I think deserves to be mentioned, which is a big reason why the Great Society, LBJ's Great Society, failed is because we got embroiled in a war in Vietnam. Yes, and so, all very the true. money that we were spending on the Great Society program in order to lift people out of poverty and it was actually working and we actually have done a show about that mm-hmm. we did last year when we talked about the great society program and you should go back and listen to our archives um, and then what happened was when we got involved or more involved in the war at Vietnam all the money that we were spending for the um, great society programs then got poured into Vietnam and then when Reagan became president as you pointed out um, he ramped up this rhetoric about welfare queens and about you know lazy people that sat around and and you know, it was very racially charged, and that's part of the reason why Reagan won the reelection. I mean, there's a lot of these. If you look at, um, if you remember, I wish we could have gotten it queued up. I don't think there was like a Willie Horton ad, right? And I that was like that. the Willie Horton ad was like the big thing that Reagan ran. So just wanted to add in the portion about Vietnam to give you an idea of sort of why the Great Society ended and, and sort of how the war on drugs got started. Just a quick um, addition. The Willie Horton ad actually came from the Bush administration. Okay. Um, the first George Bush, they ran that ad against Michael Dukakis, I think it was. I, and I like, believe you're was, correct on that. That was what got them. And guys, in case you want to call in and get some input, the number is 212-650-6903. We are going to try to do this segment of, in, a, in a different way. There are some very key points to this 1994 crime bill. I'm going to mention like a piece, like each point, and we're going to discuss that and how it resonates with today, whether it does or does not. And so, you should definitely also join the conversation yes. on Twitter, be heard underscore radio. Okay, history, Professor Stanley, we're ready. Yes, yes you're going to learn today. <laughs> and guys, don't oh boy. forget, if you like this and you like the way that I talk, oh God. give me money. No, I'm kidding. That sounded so creepy. <laughs> no, no, give the radio show money. Yes, give the radio show money. And you can definitely donate by going to whcr.org, donate and putting it under Let Your Voice Be Heard because we got to make sure we keep the lights on in here and the mic's working. So here's the first thing. We're going to go into these details. The measure paid to put more cops on the beat, train police and lawyers to investigate domestic violence, impose tougher prison sentences, and provided money for, for extra prisons. In New York alone, we have at least five prisons. 
We have one on Chambers Street. We have one in Brownsville that they put because uh, allegedly community members were complaining they had to travel too far to see their kids yeah. who were in jail. Yeah. And we have a bunch of them in upstate New York. And A bunch? A bunch. A lot. A lot? <laughs> not a bunch, a lot. Clarification. I can explain why that yeah, is. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, well, you know, but we should start with the, the statistics, right? So the U.S. represents between 4.5 and 5% of the world's population, mm-hmm. and we house between 22 and 25% of the world's prison population, yes. which is incredible. That's a quarter of the people in prison in the world are imprisoned here in the United States. And out of that, a majority of the people who are in prison in that 25% of the world's population as you could probably guess, are... White. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> are black the, are, and brown. Are black and brown. Um, so that that just gives you... So why are there a lot of prisons? Well, I mean, you mentioned some of this. The, part of the way to fight the war on drugs, which was that the federal government gave incentives to local police department to fight the war on drugs, rather than having... I mean, the FBI did, had played a role, and the DEA obviously played a role, but what they did was they said to these local police departments, we're going to give you a lot of money to buy a lot of equipment if you ramp up your war on drugs. And so these police departments, of course, said, yes, we will take that money. And they went out and they bought things like tanks. Um, But to specifically answer, which we're going to get into in more detail in in questions that are coming up. But to answer your question about prisons, the prison industry is sort of a separate issue that I don't want to digress too much into. But it creates jobs for lo- middle class jobs for people that live upstate. Like, why are there so the prison industry is upstate is huge. People upstate love prisons. They love when they put a prison. Why? Prison creates industry. Let's say you have a town that used to create something. They had factories. They did manufacturing. Now those manufacturing jobs all got shipped overseas. So now they need jobs in that middle class community. So the state says, well, we'll put a prison here. What happens after that? One, lots of people from that small town and community go work at the prison in one capacity or another, either as administrative staff, corrections officers. Uh, Maybe you're a doctor, and so you want to go work at the prison doing medical stuff. Maybe you're a psychiatrist. You go work at the prison. A lot of places in the area provide stuff to the prison. If you are a grocer, if you're a grocer or a farmer, now they come to you, they say, we'll give you a contract to give us tomatoes for the prison. So now that increases your industry. Let's say you own a hotel or a small business. Now people are coming upstate to visit their friends and family members that are incarcerated. They're staying at your hotel. They're eating at your restaurant. So there's a whole industry created around prisons and that does not help us when we're trying to reduce mass incarceration and that's tangential to the 1994 crime bill mm. thank you very Get much em. selena do you have any comments on that no 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 yeah, we I can move it we, yeah you, yeah she did we can right. move right along so the next piece that the bill covered was one was, and was one of the most controversial ones um there was a time and it happened actually during the higher education act of 1965 lbj was one of the most consequential presidents of our time people don't realize that but look at this look at this record and what it did was it permitted prisoners to receive Pell Grants for post-secondary education. So do you remember in the early 90s, they had the movies of guys who came out of jail and they had masters? And like, yeah, and, my cousin. Like they were, yeah, but while he was in jail, yeah. he was in, getting educated. So the 1994 bill pretty much took away that right. You could no longer receive mm. a, high, a secondary education while you were in prison, which realistically... I, people, what they said at the time, people who were against the bill said it strips away an opportunity for someone to improve themselves so that they do not go back to jail. So what it does is increases the likelihood of recidivism. Now, I want to ask you guys, do you see that? Like, do you think that argument was true for today? I'm going to start with myself. I think it's 100% true. I think when you have an opportunity to receive higher education, you have more job prospects when you get out of jail. 
because someone who only has a high school diploma who was in jail for 10 years or comes out is going to have a harder time finding a job than someone who has maybe a bachelor's in computer technology and knows how to code and it comes out of jail after 10 years. That person is going to have a lot easier time getting a job because you know what? You know how to code. You know, you know how to do forward slash be bold and all that crap. You've got a job. So that's my opinion on this. Um, I know, Alyssa, what's your yeah, opinion? You know, uh, I'll um I'll uh, I'll jump in there, but you know it's twofold because one I agree with you on that part, which is you know the best way to reduce recidivism is to give people the opportunity, and one way to give people opportunity is for them to get educated. Prisons are supposed to be about rehabilitation. Something like eighty percent of the people that we currently have in prison are at some point going to get out of prison. Only about twenty percent of our prison population are people who are in for life or who are sentenced to the death penalty and who are never going to get out. Yet, when people get out, the recidivism rate is so high. Well, the recidivism rate is high because they're not educated. So that's one portion of it. But there's a second portion of it that you left out, Stanley, that's really important to mention, which is even assuming we gave these people in prison the opportunity to get college degrees and stuff, we still have an issue with the box. What's the box? The box is the box that you have to check that says, have you ever been convicted of a crime? And there's a big movement that's going on in many states. One of those states is in New York. Um, It hasn't happened yet, but it's happening in other states, and it's the ban the box movement. So if we, yes, I agree with you. There's a big problem with the 1994 crime bill in saying that people are not eligible for this. I mean, in two worlds. One, we took away the incentive to become rehabilitated. And two, we had teachers and people coming in from outside that were teaching those classes. And that actually created jobs for people that weren't in prison. Um, So that was, you know, a disincentive also. At the same time, we have to go one step further to deal with that problem. Even if we were to pass a new law where we said, yes, we're going to educate all the people who have a potential to get out of prison, we still have to deal with the issue of the box. Because if you get out of prison and you have a master's degree, what good is it if nobody's going to hire you because you have a criminal record? That's very true. And it's also true that you might not have anywhere to stay because apparently you cannot get affordable, not affordable housing, but you can't stay in. You can't go back for, for drug and violent crimes. You cannot return back to the community you lived in. Right. So well, you I, can't live in a, in a public, yeah, housing, public housing, in a public housing building. So I feel like if, these are just prime examples of how our prison system was not set up to help our, our society. In other countries and in other places around the world, they have it set up where they really want to rehabilitate these people because guess what? They're going to come out. They're going to be released soon, and you don't want them to return to a lifestyle of crime. But here we have it where it's like one strike you out, two strike, three strikes, and eventually when you get stuck in there, you're making people money. It just fuels the, the largest system, a system of capitalism. So I think that the, the larger play here is that it does not. it was never designed to help people, and the fact that we have the um, the war on drugs, which is passed decades ago, just shows that it was also geared towards targeting black and minorities and people from um, vulnerable communities who don't have enough money to defend themselves and to fight a case. So what happens is no one values their lives. They get locked up and then they're just making other people rich. I agree with that. If you have a question or a comment on this topic, the our number here is 212-650-6903. You should definitely give us a call. And I think, you know, you're right about a lot of that stuff. I mean, the mass incarceration, a big reason why you see Clinton coming out right now and saying that he may have helped cause this issue of mass incarceration is because it goes back to like we just said. Now, at some point, these people are going to get out. And the question is, are they going to recidivate and go back in or are they going to become productive members of society? And we have to give them some kind of like 
up if we want them to become productive. But it's also costing us a lot of money to keep people incarcerated, an incredible amount of money. It costs something like, you know, $1,500 uh, every month, and that's like on the low end um, in order to keep a single prisoner incarcerated. It actually costs more money to keep one person incarcerated for a full year than it does to send that person to college for a year. So when you're talking, now that doesn't mean we should let violent criminals out of jail to go run around the streets. We shouldn't. But when we're talking about a lot of people who are economically disadvantaged and then sold drugs and now find themselves in prison, you know, we have to be saying, hey, you know, we could send this person to college for a year. Maybe we put them on some kind of probation where they have to check in with the probation officer and they have to go to college. But still, we would be saving money sending them to college for a year and putting them up in a dorm room and having them check in with probation and giving them an opportunity at a better life than we would locking them away in prison so that they can get out, commit more crimes and go back to prison. This is why I messaged you the long way. We got to go on a quick break, guys. When we come back, we'll continue talking about this crime bill of 1994. This is a song from the Notorious B.I.G. which talks about the rules for committing crimes and stuff. Let your voice be heard on 90.3 FM. Woo! HCR, the voice of Harlem. We sure Twitter. are back. What the heck just happened That to was you? just like, we're back. I very clearly said we're coming back. You didn't care about my voice. That was a problem. Um, it's your voice. Yes, that is the problem. My voice is very soothing. I don't know what she's talking about. Selena, you are clearly a bigot towards attractive people who ride bikes. What? Yes. In case you are just tuning in, we are in the studio. Myself, Stanley Fritz, Selena Hill, Alyssa Fuchs, and of course, we have the Dante Barry from the Million Hoodies. What does he do? Black Lives Matter. Activism. <laughs> stands up Can for you? people who need a voice and I'm going to stop talking before Selena stabs me with her pen because he is a dreamer and doer who we will make believe is not in the studio until we start his segment. <laughs> no, no. I was going to say don't take my intro. All right, That's fine. what I was going to say. Save and, it. And but also, yeah. you might not remember but we know each other from New Organizing Institute. We went to a couple of trainings together. Yes. See? Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hold on. Let me put your mic up a little bit. Oh, he's on mic four. So guys, as you know, unless your voice be heard, we always have interesting exchanges with the mics on or off. And I know Selena missed me last week because while I was riding my bike, she was dropping calls like they were bombs in Afghanistan. Stop it, Stanley, because you were one of the calls and you dropped us. Yes, I did. Okay, and I... that was very annoying. No, but he dropped us for a good reason because he was going to make an inappropriate comment in uh, a really serious was. segment about something that we were yes. talking about. The first black man to make it to Staten Island without getting shot. That was going to be my comment. <laughs> but that guys, was my comment. <laughs> we are back on Let Your Voice Be Heard and we are talking about Bill Clinton's crime bill of 1994. And so far we have talked about how the bill stopped the ability from prisoners from getting Pell funding to get college educations. We talked about the fact that the bill gave an additional amount of money to st- states to fund police officers and jobs and materials and tanks and all sorts of things you need to and, keep the community safe. And all safe. kinds of military equipment yes, because, because you need military equipment when you're fighting 40 peaceful protesters. Because <laughs> when, Ms. J- Ms., when Ms. Johnson's cat is stuck in a tree, you need a rocket launcher to shoot the black guy it's, who's walking there. It just doesn't make sense. It makes every sense know, because the black guy put the cat in the tree or but something. But then, like, we really actually do have some riots. What was that pumpkin riot that you brought up? Like That, that was the white wa- people. Yeah. That was we, don't, we don't did, need did, militarized did they, police. Did they bring the tanks to, out? That no. was During hustling. That? You're no. a racist, Lena. No. They don't do that. They one. didn't bring the tanks out? White people are prejudiced, are too unfairly White people, like, burned down Colorado once when they lost the Super Bowl or they won the Super Bowl or 
doesn't matter. Yeah, but that's why we need. We don't. We don't need militarized you know police for we crazy. We need white more right appreciation. Days. I'm gonna start a holiday for white people. It's called all 12 months of the year. <laughs> 365 <laughs> days per year. White. 365 white. All lives matter. Unless you're gay yes. or Jewish. White or a woman. Month. Or a woman. Exactly. Why don't we appreciate Ronald Reagan? <laughs> but guys, I know I am blowing smoke up your ears, and you don't want to hear that. You want to hear about the crime bill. I have a very interesting piece about the crime bill that I wanted to save until you got here, Dante. So I'm very happy you walked <laughs> into this room. One of the things the 94 crime bill did was make it a crime to be in a gang. Mm. So even if like they don't, and not just like a crime, but they don't have to prove it. Like there's this like the level of proof you need to show someone's in the gang was very loose. If you and I were standing together, you can get arrested because we're in a gang. And I'll give you a perfect example of that. Last summer, right there at Grant Houses down the hill on 125th Street in Amsterdam. NYPD 35th Precinct had a huge raid where they busted into several apartments and arrested over 101 teenagers for being affiliated in gangs in Grant Houses and Manhattanville. A lot of the young men were not actually in gangs, but were friends with people who were in the gangs because that's what happens when your community has gangs and people are in them and you grew up with these people. Hey, I grew up in East New York, Brooklyn. I had a lot of friends who were Bloods and Crips and ABGs and Latin Kings. I wasn't necessarily one. Don't say nothing, Selena. No, uh, no. I just want to say, so you can't even, I can't even do like the cool handshakes. Like then all of a sudden it's like you're affiliated. You know how they got the, the you know, okay. it go, but it goes back to something that I mentioned earlier and I continue to mention and I will mention now and again in future shows about everything be, being related to everything else. Another bill that was passed when Clinton was president was a bill that like, you know, linked welfare to work, which actually is a good bill because it, it forced it, it gets people out to actually go to work and do things, but it wasn't implemented properly. Because it wasn't implemented properly, you end up still having a lot of people in poverty, right? Why do people join gangs? We've talked about this. A lot of times people join gangs because they don't have economic opportunity, they don't have educational opportunity, and they don't have opportunity to get good jobs and go forward, so they join a gang in order to get the kinds of opportunities um, and that they wouldn't have otherwise. So when you have other pieces of legislation that are well-intentioned, uh, as well as the crime bill, which was also, I believe, well-intentioned, but then the implementation process doesn't happen right, then you leads to a situation where people become even more economically impoverished, have less economic opportunity, and are more likely to join a gang. And that compounds the situation uh, in why, when you are now saying that two black men standing next to each other on a street corner are a gang. It's supposed to be a rap video. Go ahead, Dante. <laughs> <laughs> no, I totally agree with that, and I think um, I tend to I tend to call them street organizations um, because that's what they are, right? And I think that um, ultimately we tend to criminalize gangs um, or street organizations for what they are. Um, and uh, oft- oftentimes those are alternative family structures and right. they're alternative fa- uh, friend structures. Um, and when you're when you're growing up growing up in the hood and you have um, the the always reliability to uh, fear of your life, and it's always a, an idea of surviving. Um, you need that alternative structure there. If you're if you're coming home and you're you might not have the the safest safest uh, place to live. So I think when we when we look at street organizations, we also need to like unpack what what is the conditions that got those folks into that that situation in the first place exactly and and we mentioned that earlier in the show where we said again it's just the fact of the matter where the whether it's a gang or it's a terrorist group like isis they happen to listen to these people they 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 understand they understand the struggle and they're reaching them before we are and it might be because we simply either don't care or we don't have the effort and resources but you know if you're like 20 white people and you have rifles and you want to go out to bundy ranch you're not a gang well you're you're, what what are they called a patriot you're a patriot that actually was a good 
the police. Right. <laughs> What's the difference? Well, that goes back to a comment that we had a caller made earlier yes. during our first segment, which is now relevant that we should get to talking about. So Richard, he called in earlier when we were talking about homegrown terrorism, and he says, why don't we associate the KKK or some mm. of these police precincts, like the Ferguson precinct, or the Baltimore police um, police department as well, as like these terrorist groups who terrorize communities and terrorize people. And this, legisla- this legislation, it does something very interesting. It, it criminalizes gangs, and I will tell you, as someone who grew up in a community that was very infiltrated with gangs, not every gang is bad. And mm, we, right. Not every gang is bad, because you know what? Like, sometimes, like, there were gangs in the community that, A, kept the community safe, that they were outside, mm-hmm. they protected people, they made sure no one was bothering you. They were the ones that would buy the kids candy during the summer, made sure you can play in the park. When things were going on, they made sure people, you need to go in the house right now. Right, Baltimore. Like, right. Like, that's actually what, what actually happened in Baltimore. Um, and people were afraid of it. And people, like, the police department particularly were criminalized the Crips and Bloods, who brokered a truce. They sat through, I think, a three-hour private uh, session to broker a truce, and they worked together to um, like organize in Baltimore yeah. uh, around the uprising. And we tend to see we tend to see that they they were uh, criminalized in this way. They're deemed as a threat because they brokered a truce. Um, and I, I think that we have to unpack that as well because, like, why? Like, if they're if they're coming together, one, we we tend to hear about this. What do we? What is the black community going to do against black on black crime? When one, we should be celebrating the fact that they broke the truce. Right. But then, when when we do celebrate the, that fact, um, we see more criminalization on that. And one more history lesson: Do you know why the Crips were started? To protect the community mm-hmm. from the police. Mm-hmm. In what, what state, Stanley? In California. It was started in California, and it was like pretty much a reaction to, to Black Panthers mm-hmm. when Black Panthers started to lose some of their power because we know that the CIA and the FBI were working so hard to discredit them with drugs and shooting them 117 times, even though they didn't shoot back. And these gangs were started as, communi- as groups that could protect the community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then that- when Reagan pretty much... A firestorm, all sorts of crack and cocaine into these communities, that's when things really started to shift gears. Alyssa? I mean, we're up here in Harlem, and obviously they've made a movie about it, an American gangster movie, but I mean, the, the events in that movie are based on real events that happened here in Harlem, and a big theme, at least at the beginning of the movie, is that the people who are committing a lot of the crimes are also the same people who are handing out a turkey to everybody on Thanksgiving that are, like, trying to better right. the community. I mean, the one of the opening scenes of that movie is the character who's playing Nikki Barnes handing out turkeys to everybody mm-hmm. in Harlem. So there's definitely some truth in into, you know, the fact that these these organizations are also trying to or were created with the intention of betterment of the community. And then it also goes back to something that Dante and I were just talking about about opportunity is, you know, these organizations are protecting the community, but they're engaging in criminality because there's not other economic mm-hmm. opportunity for them. And if there was, then they would be legitimate organizations that were, you know, doing whatever it was that they were doing and also trying to better the or the community and not necessarily engaging in criminality in order to better the community. Selena? Stanley, you made a great point when you said that Ronald Reagan started to target the Crips um, in California when they first joined this. And that just shows that there's so much power in organizing an organization and in numbers, especially when it comes to uh, revol- revolutionary thinking. Um, the fact that you saw these people actually coming together for on a positive front and to try to make changes within their community, and they're like, hold on, hold on, let's stop this. We don't want them to get too radical. Mm-hmm. We don't want things to get out of hand. We need to do something about it. And that's why it's so important 
for us to continue to organize. And we'll speak about that more later with uh, Dante, why it's so important for, you know, to dedicate, why we need to support people who are dedicated to social or, or, I mean, social activism and organizing on this front because there is so much power right. behind it. And it's a great thing, and I think that's a big reason why law enforcement not feels physically or violently threatened, but just feels uh, like a, more of a threat. I mean, look at it. The reason why law enforcement has been able to oppress a lot of people in these communities for so long is because they've been able to point to, well, this group's killing this group, and this group's killing this group, so now we're going to come in the community and we're going to try and stop this violence between the groups. And that's led to a situation where the police have been able to oppress a large majority of people living in minority neighborhoods because they're able to say, well, look, these two gangs are fighting, so that gives us a reason to come in. So now when you have two groups that are very much always fighting each other and in some ways giving the police a reason to be there because there's constantly gang violence and shootings between them, and now they're banding together and saying, hey, we're being targeted by the police. Let's band together and let's work, you know, not anti-cop, but let's work to change the institutionalized system that creates this situation. That's a real threat to law enforcement community. Yes, it is. All right, guys, we are running out of time. We have two minutes left. I want to take advantage of this time to let everyone give a very brief closing statement. Dante, you can start. Um, We'll finish it off with me because I have the best closing statements all the time. Selena, if you have nothing to say, you can just say go ahead. I do have something to say. You, You don't sound too convincing, so Dante, go ahead. Um, how would you like to just wrap it up? Um, I think all everything that y'all just said is super, super critical and super important. And I think that um, when we look at street organizations, we need to really think about what what are the con- what are the conditions that got to the folks there into that situation. Um, and I often find often decide say that that what their situation is is often a response to state violence. Um, and decide that like they've they've lived through poverty, they've lived through um, homelessness, prob- probably they've lived through alternative family structures. Um, so we ne- really need to look at how um, those conditions got them there. Thank you for that. I agree. I mean, listen, everybody who's listened to the show in the past and who's going to listen to the show in the future knows where I stand on this issue. So I'm not going to reiterate my whole platform as a civil rights attorney and, you know, where we are with police accountability. I just go back to the issue I raise all the time, which is we have to fix society. We have to fix the underlying problems in society about poverty, about education, about social safety net, about the tax code. If we don't fix the underlying problems, we're never going to fix this issue. It's just like when you're talking about, for example, somebody, to make it real simple for people, when you're talking about somebody who's an alcoholic, right? You're like, well, why does this person drink? And all the scientists will tell you, in order to stop this person from drinking, you have to address the underlying issues that is causing this person to drink, anxiety, depression, etc. It's the same thing. We keep putting patches and band-aids on bleeders, and putting a band-aid on a bleeding artery is not going to stop the artery from bleeding out we have to address the underlying problems so not too long ago hillary clinton she was right here in harlem she spoke at columbia university and we know she's running for president so one of the key things she focused on are one of the central issues in national discourse which happened to be mass incarceration police brutality and um and and just the system the criminal justice system in general and what she said is and i quote it's time to end the era of mass incarceration and she decried the the decades-long growth of american prison populations and it also you know as stanley brought up at the beginning of the segment it just so happens that this all 
stems from the 1994 crime bill. A lot of it stems from it in these policies, which we discussed today. And I wanted to say that it's so important to make sure that we understand, understand the stems, the roots and the origins to what's going on. I mean, you know, we've all here have been to the marches. We've all um, tweeted about this and we've all talked about this, but it didn't just start, you know, it didn't start with Freddie Gray. It didn't start with Michael Brown. No, it didn't, didn't start with Eric Gardner. It started way before that. Even, um, I was going to say before some of us were born, but mm-hmm. I can't speak um, for Stanley's age. But um, I'm just saying, sorry Racism. about that. No, that's ageism. Ageism. That's, yeah. ageism. that's a different ism. Ageism. I'm just kidding, Stanley. But um, no, I'm just trying to say that it's so important for us to take the time and to understand what happened in our history so that these mistakes are not repeated. Now, President Bill Clinton came out and apologized. When you apologize for something, you're basically saying this was a mistake. This was an oversight. This bill overreached and went too far. And now today, what are we fighting against? Police, uh, the militarization of police and police brutality because it's going too far. It's abusive at this point. So, again, I'm just glad that we talked about it and we went back to the roots in 1994. Well, Selena, you mentioned something and you mentioned some some satisfaction or like pleased to see that Bill Clinton apologized or 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 at least acknowledge what acknowledged it. Right. so a coworker and one of my favorite people actually she's she's very intelligent and entertaining overall. She likes to tell me that she hates it when people get her empty apologies. Mm-hmm. W- what we're seeing is just a history of empty apologies. And what is what is an apology if you don't if you don't actually rectify the wrongs you've made in the past? I think we have a, just a tendency in America to see that something went wrong and think by saying I'm sorry or we misspoke or this wasn't a good idea that all the problems are solved. But just like taking an Advil because you have a headache might make the pain go away for now, but it doesn't deal with the fact that you have a headache for a reason that has nothing to do with just random pain. Saying I'm sorry does not address the issues that we have in places like East New York, where I came from, Harlem, Baltimore, Ferguson, Missouri, Alabama, Georgia, every single place where you are becoming criminalized for being black or Latino, a woman, gay, lesbian, transgender, where poor people are being taken advantage of, and where the people who are supposed to be protecting us and leading us are, instead of looking at the root causes, are just going, we need something to look good, and putting proverbial band-aids on glaring issues. If you really want to make a substantial change and do something and show us you're sorry, what you have to do is rip off the Band-Aid and get with the real diagnosis and invest $9.7 billion in weapons, $6.7 billion in more police officers. Imagine if that went to education, infrastructure, training, and employment. But that's all we can do, imagine, because no one is talking to talk like they were. No one's walking to walk, but they're talking to talk. So, guys, we will be right back. I played a song earlier. And Which it one still are we resonates playing? today. Tell us what? No. Okay. Because this is really the reflection of how people feel about their communities, and you should know this, especially people of color who don't feel like they have a place. So. We're going to get to that. Yes, we are going to get to that right now. And guys, once again, listen to the lyrics because it is real and it resonates today. Let your voice be heard. We'll be right, right back. Oh, 